0: I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenzo.
1: I'm Thomas O'Neill-White.
2: I'm Angelie
0: Preston.
3: We need to get together and let our voices be heard.
0: This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're gonna have some real
1: healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's east side and beyond.
4: In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children
1: Welcome back to another episode of What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and joining me today is Kelly Dumas, the executive director of Healing Hub of New York Incorporated, and also the founder of Dumas Rise LLC, and Amanda Paul from Say Yes Buffalo. Thank you both for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having
1: us. Healing Hub and Say Yes Buffalo has partnered for the Building Clinicians of Color campaign. Uh, Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about this collaboration?
3: Absolutely. So um, probably, I don't know, was it a year, a little while ago, I got a call from Amanda from Say Yes Buffalo that, um, you know, they were working on this uh, initiative following the TOPS massacre. You know, there was a noted need to have more clinicians of color accessible to the community so she was reaching out to different providers to kind of get some input on how to go about uh, doing that so um, I don't know if you want to speak a little too. Sure.
2: It. Yeah. Um, after the shooting that took place at Tops, we were approached by a few different funders. Um, you know, United Healthcare being one of the the key ones, and they came to us and they said, "What what can we do? We would like to do what we can um, to support the community." And they were looking to us um, to give them some answers. So we naturally looked to the community to hear mm-hmm. what they what they needed. And um, after. Um, Everything had taken place, and there was a lot of community response. Um, mental health services was was widely sought, and the feedback we received was that there were not enough clinicians of color being able to provide services at, at that point in time and just in general. Um, and so that's when we turned back to the funders and said this is where we want to put the focus. And initially um, the thought process was that we would hire uh, more people either would say yes or look to what we have a lot of partner agencies that provide mental health services, um, and so we had several planning sessions. Like Kelly was talking when Kelly got looped into that. We we uh, brought Kelly in, and and thankfully for Kelly, um, she had us take a couple steps back and said. There are a lot of people of color who are providing mental health services, but not necessarily to members in the Buffalo community because there's a lot of barriers um, mm-hmm. that they're up against. And so what can we do differently? And from that point on, it just made natural sense to work with Kelly and the Healing Hub to, to lead, the, lead the work.
1: And so, Kelly, what, what type of barriers are we talking about here?
3: Oh,
2: yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we
3: no one knows how many clinicians of color we even have so right. the visibility of us is a big barrier we have a number of private practice uh, black owned run um, people of color who are you know have a full practice of mental health services we have a number of um, black and brown clinicians that are working within clinics, um, behavioral health clinics, but the awareness. So part of it. So one piece was increasing. We need to increase awareness Mm -hmm. um, of where the clinicians are. How do you access uh, those services if you're looking specifically for a person of color to provide mental health support? And then a lot of our Ones who are providing services to the community, there are barriers to being able to accept insurance. Um, that is a quite a feat to mm-hmm. uh, to tackle, and so that that becomes a barrier for many, um, and and many of them don't have the resources available uh, to address that. So those are just a couple of the major ones, and then if we get into At the end of the day, we just we need more. So we need more coming into the field. And so to address that, we have to get back, go back to where whether it's middle school, high school and start talking to our young people about a career in mental health field and getting people interested. So as they, you know, take their path to professional careers, that's that's kind of in their mind. Um, So, yeah.
1: Getting back to that first point, how do you raise awareness
3: Um, Well, I think that a a couple simple ways, it seems simple, but when you lack the resources necessary to do it, um, most of our black and brown clinicians who have practices, marketing, um, being able to have a presence, whether that's on social media or just out in the, they don't have funds to do things like that. So a lot of times you'll hear by word of mouth. You know, mm-hmm. if you're lucky, we you know, we just have kind of that network that happens where you call someone and say, hey, I'm looking for a black counselor. Do you know anyone? So um, being able to have resources to be able to kind of um, uh, have a locate. And, and this is part of what we're going to work on, too, under this initiative, creating a database. So a place where the community can go to right. kind of look and see, you know, here are clinicians of color, practices of color, mental health providers and how to access them
1: so who are these folks in this mm-hmm. cohort you've got uh, 16 members yes. can you talk about their trajectories because they're not all at the same level right now
3: that's right Who? yes it's a it's a um, diverse group of um, with uh, individual needs so we have a number of participants who have their own private practice. Um, Some of them currently are looking on how to expand that practice. They have folks who are interested in joining. Um, So we're providing some support, uh, like business support in, in knowing how do you expand your practice? If I'm an individual clinician and now I want to have Folks, join me. How do I uh, create that? Some of them are getting support to be able to accept health insurance. We have some clinicians in the cohort who work at behavioral health clinics, Um, and so they're looking to expand their capacity uh, in terms of professional skills, um, maybe uh, professional training. Uh, One was able to complete an anger management, for example, certification. So when people uh, from our communities of color are looking for us i say us because i'm a clinician of color myself Mm -hmm. um we also want to make sure we have the various specialties so some of them are able to access some trainings and workshops to enhance their skills several of them um are licensed fully licensed a number of them are working towards that so they're getting assistance with study prep there's a a difficult exam to pass so Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it costs it's expensive to take the exam and to get um study tools so so they're getting support in that way. Um, having licensed professionals are important uh, as well as having the paraprofessionals. So all of it's important, but the license piece is important because oftentimes as people of color, we are misdiagnosed when we go into spaces because we are being seen by people who may not recognize cultural differences. So this is also helping us to get more licensed professionals of color.
1: Amanda mentioned earlier that um, this clinicians of color was born and bred out of um, identifying needs post 514. Um, I know the, the the top shooter's federal death penalty trial is set for September 2025. It's 20 months from now, and you know, given appeals, it could could stretch out longer. Mm-hmm. Considering all of this, can you speak on the long-term trauma effects? on the community as it relates to this program.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, um the trauma that the community has experienced and um will continue to experience impact from it didn't start at 514. Right. Um so, you Maybe know, the
1: 514 exacerbated exactly.
3: The, and so um you know, it exacerbates it, it brought it to the forefront. So just like it didn't start then, it's not just going to go away. Right. So we have an opportunity to address it, to take a look at it and say, OK, this is this is an issue that has been existed and plagued our community how do we make improvement on it the the traumatic impacts of this shooting will be far reaching so being able to have supports and services available in our communities so that people when they're feeling like they need to talk to somebody they need some kind of support and there are times when there are times when you know it's okay maybe i don't feel i have to speak to someone of color but oftentimes if if a person of color feels like I want to speak to a person of color. We need to make sure we have enough supports available and people know how to find Mm -hmm.
1: them. Or just having the need to speak to someone Mm -hmm. and that someone happens to be a person of color Mm -hmm. probably makes it easier for that person to, to talk and to open up.
3: Absolutely. And especially if you think about this particular, I mean, we're talking about, um, trauma that comes from a racially driven act. So race is definitely a big issue for people who are healing and and still feeling the traumatic impacts of that. So it does help to make sure you have people who look like those who were targeted um, so that people can actually come in and not feel like they have to be guarded Mm -hmm. with what they say because I don't want to offend. I don't want to upset someone. I don't know if they'll understand why I'm angry, you know, so to be able to come into a space and be free and talk about what's going on and get the help you need.
1: Is that the overall goal for the program? Then?
3: Yes. I mean, the. yes, the overall goal is to really, really, at the end of the day, uh, have many spaces, many spaces where our communities can see where they can go. Where there are spaces designed for people of color where they know this is a a safe, I was pausing a little with doing that because saying safe space, but basically Mm -hmm. a safe space or a space that recognizes as a person of color, I may come with some unique and different um, needs. So having lots of those spaces available and people being able to access them
1: how are the needs going to be met and what, what were the conversations about on how to build this framework? Yeah.
3: So, you know, when, a when you look at the needs, um, there's, there can be some unique differences. I think when we're really looking to provide culturally centered, uh, supports, um, so we want to make sure that besides uh, being a person of color um, that's able, that's providing the support, uh, oftentimes we tend to be more communal. Mm-hmm. So having spaces that allows for that to happen, oftentimes in our mental health system, and it's just the way it's designed, it's very structured and restrictive where you know, um, it's uh, prescriptive. So you might have 45 minutes, and in these 45 minutes you have to get about 10 things done. So it doesn't really allow for the time that someone who one is coming in with some hesitation because of stigma and mm-hmm. all the, you know, so creating those spaces that allows time for people to just come in and not feel rushed or, um, um, pushed into uh, fitting into an existing structure of how they'll get the support. Um, I forgot
1: what you asked. <laughs> oh, building the framework. <laughs> oh, yes. No worries, no worries. Lord, not yes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so yeah, so building and building the framework, I think it's it has been and it will continue to be very important to hear the voice of the people in terms of what it is that they need. You know, um people from what we have heard Uh, up to now, there's really been a need for what we are calling non-traditional supports. And I hesitate um, in using that term non-traditional because for many of us, um, people of color, a lot of things that help us, they're very indigenous and Mm -hmm. they've been helping people of color. If you go back hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. it's just not traditional in the context of what we have here. Um, in the U.S. and what has been coined as traditional, so being able to come together in a communal way and um, provide support to each other—that uh, could happen through, again, non-traditional ways: uh, music, cooking. You know, you don't have to. It's not always about coming and sitting in a chair. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> and going through. So help come. You know, help can look different, and so. Um, the framework, I think, has to allow space for those who are seeking the support and services to be able to help frame it. We can't just come in and say, OK, this is what we have and this is what you need. Mm-hmm. We have to take that time to make sure we're also hearing um, and pivoting when right.
1: necessary. So so you could create a cooking class, yes. essentially. Or like um, some sort of musical program.
3: Absolutely, that's very therapeutic for many people. And oftentimes, when you incorporate activities like that, it takes people off the mindset Mm -hmm. of "I'm I'm getting mental health." So you can incorporate those pieces into it but while we are doing other things so um there are and we have a number of black and brown mental health professionals who do that you know but then it's about um making sure they have the resources available to continue doing that and that the community knows how to access them
1: we we mentioned um say yes's role but there's obviously um a lot of other partners um, involved in this endeavor. Um, can both of you speak to that?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, say yes. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons the funders did look to say, yes, we have a collective impact partnership where we really, if, if something exists, we don't want to recreate it. We want to uplift, right? And mm-hmm. so um, once we really started getting into the weeds of, of the structure and how this is going to look, um, that's when we were also looking at who are we partnering with or who do we need to partner with to make this work happen. And so I know Villa Maria, we approached, yes. um, joined, to the, they're really um, offering up their space to us. And, and they, we also talked about long-term goals mm-hmm. and how they, uh, as um, a higher ed institution, can also support this. You know, we mentioned ta- working mm-hmm. with students, working, you know, and, and exposing them to different career paths. So. Um, Villa Maria mm-hmm. um, you know now we also are pulling in a lot of different um, pr- uh, partners when it comes to the training and and yes. um, different yes. areas of credentialing so there's a lot of moving pieces and and putting all that together mm-hmm. so I don't
3: know yeah we have uh, another partner is the Rafiki Consortium that's um, outside of the um, they're out of Baltimore, but they're providing to the clinicians in the cohort some culturally centered skills training. So, we've had indigenous psychotherapy training. Um, this month, there's going to be um, black family resilience. They're going to do a training on um, DSM 5 diagnosing from a cultural lens. So, they're going to do about 10 trainings with the group. Um, uh, recovering from racialized trauma is one. So the nice things about these trainings is they are, while we're going through these trainings and learning skills, they're also healing for ourselves because as people of color, we're right. not immune <laughs> from um, needing mental health support, experiencing um, the trauma that others, you know, are experiencing. So, There's also we have to make sure that we are providing uh, folks who are serving, um, providing them with the supports needed so that they can continue to serve. They can take care of their own mental health needs Mm -hmm. so that they can continue to thrive and serve at
1: their full capacity. And have you run into that issue, Kelly, yourself?
3: Personally? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. absolutely you know unfortunately and and it can be a difficult thing as a you know because as a professional you know but you know in your head that you're not immune but when you find yourself in a space of needing help you know um figuring out where do I get that help uh what can that look like for me it can be very challenging so I do think we also need to be intentional, and that's part of mm-hmm. what this initiative is as well. You know, I was one of the first um, mental health providers on the scene. Unfortunately, that day, and I saw a lot, and I was there for weeks, and it took months um, before I started. I. Because in order to serve, you have to kind of suppress and numb yourself so that you can be available to others. So mm-hmm. this is, as a professional mental health clinician, this is what all of us were out there doing, trying to numb and focus on the need. However, we're not immune to what's happening. So months later, I I had conversations with some who was just sharing, you know, I'm having a nightmare, I'm dreaming of what i saw i can't sleep i was finally able to you know talk to my spouse and it's like yeah me too so i think that um you know being able to be in a space that normalizes that for the professionals and acknowledge that we also have to take care of ourselves so that we can continue Mm -hmm. to serve it's Mm -hmm. important
1: let's 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 continue with with a little bit about your own history um both at, at Healing Hub and then, you know, moving forward with uh, Dumas Rise LLC.
3: Yes. yeah. So, I mean, really, so that the Healing Hub um, is a mental health of nonprofit organization that really focuses on providing some direct services. Uh, to our communities of color, providing workshops, doing community engagement. Um, we're going to continue to do that great work. Um, some of the clinicians who are in the cohort are going to provide services under the Healing Hub through the work, like providing workshops and groups. With the Dumas RISE, RISE standing for Restoration and Sound Environments, we need restoration and sound stable environments Um, it's going to really focus on providing uh, those types of spaces for mental health for people who are in the mental health field not just people of color who are in the mental health field Mm -hmm. or who are looking to go into the mental health field so really uh, increasing the number of um, black and brown uh, clinicians and then also making sure they have the supports that they need to continue serving and in that also recognizing that in our communities of color our leaders of faith are oftentimes the first line of mental health support for many of us so they also need to make sure they're getting what they need Mm -hmm. to continue providing support so you know whether it's Uh, a trained, licensed mental health professional, a peer-trained, Uh, a mental health professional, a faith leader, anyone who's providing mental health support. We want to make sure that we are that they have resources, that they have the visibility. So the community knows where they are, how to find them. And um, and we want to make sure we're adding to the pool of mental health professionals.
1: Uh, Building capacity.
3: Yes.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) Um, so in this this program is obviously a great step, Healing Hub, and then Dumas Rise, LLC. What other steps need to be taken, do you think?
3: Um, I think that we have to make sure that we don't... The, the the name of this show is "What's Next."
1: Yes, ma'am. <laughs> but we're gonna ask you what's next in a little no, bit. No, so don't go there. Yet. I, I was gonna say,
3: as a we want to make sure we don't. I think as a society, um, we have a tendency to want to rush to okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, staying present in making sure we put the attention, the time and resources into addressing the needs that have been brought to the forefront and realizing that while it's been a year and a half going on two years, it's still so very raw Mm -hmm. for so many people and we still have so much work to do and we're not going to be able to do that without everyone coming into the space right
1: table let's not put the cart before the horse let's let's we've got these issues right here right now let's make sure all those bases are covered before we even talk about Mm -hmm. moving forward
3: Mm
1: -hmm. is it up to is it all up to institutions to take the lead on this um what can you do in your role and, and where does community input come into play
3: um I wouldn't say it's all up to institutions. I think that all institutions need to recognize that they do play a role in in changing the narrative, changing our present reality and also taking responsibility and making sure they're not just doing um things in a performative mm. way that they are really doing things uh taking steps to transform and make true long-term impact changes. So I think all of it, you know, everyone plays a role. Um and so institutions have to understand and make sure that um, community voices present and it's not enough to just hold you know maybe you have a meeting and you invite community in but if you go back and just do what you do mm-hmm. without actually incorporating um, any of those steps you know um, that's not good and yeah so just not taking steps to 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 look like I'm making change, but actually, yes. really
1: doing the change. Being, being intentional yes. with with your movements. Absolutely. So now the question is, what's next for Kelly Dumas <laughs> in the Healing Hub of New York and Dumas Rise, LLC?
3: Yes. So what's next is a continuation of you know, we need at the end of the day we need more clinicians. We'll never, I don't know that we'll ever have enough. If you look, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we have overall, when you look at uh, mental health clinicians, the number of black and brown clinicians are very low compared to the need Mm -hmm. of people who need services. So we'll never have enough to serve everyone, but we need more. So what's next is we have to continue looking at how do we increase the number of um, mental health professionals um, that are out here able to serve and how do we increase the community's awareness and ability to access those individuals. Um, Also, as we continue to increase the number of black and brown mental health professionals, we understand that they are going to find themselves uh, more so than not working in spaces that are not designed for us. And so we have to make sure we are also equipping them and providing them with the supports that they need to be successful and in, in wherever they find themselves so that they can really fully serve and not burn out, um, you know, and not feel like I have to leave the field because I'm being harmed and it's not healthy for me.
1: So a multiple, multi-pronged approach to building up black and brown clinicians. Yes. Um, It's been a a very thorough conversation. Um, Thank you. And I want to thank Kelly Dumas from Healing Hub of New York and Dumas Rise LLC and Amanda Paul from Say Yes Buffalo. This is what's next on WBFO. When we return, I'll be speaking with Jenea Capers, organizer for Housing Justice at Push Buffalo, and Brianna Hargrave, program coordinator at Lead 716. After this.
5: This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of February 19th through February 25th. I'm your host, Abby Milo. The very first time television was exposed to the Western New York audience was at a public demonstration in Buffalo on February 22, 1947. Some people may not realize that there was a NFL cheerleader union, and the very first unionized NFL cheerleading squad was the Buffalo Bills' very own squad known as the Buffalo Jills. The Jills disbanded in 2014. Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania is not the only city to have a groundhog acting as a weather predictor. Buffalo has its very own rodent mascot, Burt. Buffalo Burt the Groundhog predicted six more weeks of winter back on January 27th. Burt and the Buffalo Groundhog Day Society officially started their alternative party focused weather predictions on February 24th, 2016. You've been listening to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Abby Mila. Did you know that WNED PBS is always working on great new local shows for you to watch? Documentaries like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, which tells the story of Buffalo's music hall. The hall is
4: very intimate. And that intimacy makes everyone who comes in here feel
1: a part of our family.
5: Fun and educational series like Compact Science. Believe it or not, peppers are technically fruits. And Shakespeare's greatest hits featuring some of his best-known soliloquies and monologues.
1: We are such stuff as dreams are made
5: of. You can watch them all on our website at wned.org slash local shows. While you're there, check out the show pages and many websites for additional content such as bonus features, photo galleries, and lesson plans. Find it all at WNED.org slash local shows.
0: You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. If you have a story or concern that we should be addressing, email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. You're listening to What's Next.
1: I'm host Thomas O'Neill White and joining me today... To talk lead poisoning and the proactive rental inspections law in the city of Buffalo are Jenea Capers, a housing justice organizer at push Buffalo and Brianna Hargrave, the program coordinator for lead seven, one, six. Thank you both for being with us today. So let's talk last week, uh, the partnership for the public good and its partners rallied at Niagara square to call on the city of Buffalo to comply with the proactive rental inspections law, uh, over 200 children living in Buffalo are diagnosed with elevated lead uh, blood lead levels, uh, and thousands more are exposed to lead-based hazards in their homes. Uh, Janaya, can you tell us what the PRI law is, and what the city of Buffalo is or isn't doing with regard to the law?
6: Yes, Thomas. I just want to say thank you for having me here today. So in 2020, um, Buffalo passed proactive renters inspection. This law was created to combat lead poisoning. Um, That was one of the things that it was created for. And it was also created to um, fight like minimal standard like housing, such as to protect um, things such as like um make sure your house is like rodent free like make sure the foundation is safe like um also make sure like your porch um is okay um and things like that but one thing that we really focus on is lead because buffalo housing is really um uh, we have a very old housing mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that and we have a very high lead population, which is something that a lot of people don't know. And that was the reason why we're trying to fight and combat this. And that's one of the reason why the law was passed.
1: So, yeah. And you mentioned that that Buffalo has a lot of old houses, a lot of houses built before uh, 1979. Um, where where would people find lead or like run into lead hazards in these houses?
6: Yes. So a lot of the lead in the houses are either like um you can find them in the paint. Um so if sometimes when your paint is like you can see it start to chip, that's like the lead will start to um fall out of that. So um sometimes to stop it you'll wanna like paint over it when it starts to chip. Um that's one um place that you can find lead at um here in buffalo we don't you can find lead and water too but we don't find it that much here in um in buffalo mm-hmm. um but those are like some of the places where you can find um
2: like that
1: and so the common council in 2020 they they passed this pri law and but what, like what what has happened or what hasn't happened since then that that what's the problem with implementing the law that the city is running into
6: Yes. So as you said, it was passed in twenty twenty. Um and when it was passed, it was said that we're they were supposed to inspect six thousand houses annually. And with that, um and it was supposed to be on a five year um five year plan. Yes, it was supposed to be a five year plan and so that was supposed to amount to um thirty six thousand mm-hmm. um houses, right? And that was basically that was where high risk houses, right? And that wasn't like so. When I say like high risk houses, those are that was in neighborhoods that had the highest amount of lead, and usually, um, those were houses that usually had children in it. So those wasn't all the houses in Buffalo that had lead. Um, those were just like um
1: the highest risk. Yes. Spots.
6: Um, but as we see. Um, Currently, um, we haven't even amounted um, those. We barely even reached that amount of houses between um, twenty between twenty twenty and twenty twenty two. We barely even got five thousand houses inspected, Um, and the reason can be that we only had about two um, PRI inspectors, Um, but it can be other reasons for what um, I myself um, cannot tell you
1: and um brianna can you can you i want to get you in here um how does how does exposure to to lead impact children
7: yes yeah, so um exposure to lead can lead to a bunch of developmental or learning disabilities so um things like adhd can happen uh also attention like ten, um, a lot of kids aren't able to pay attention in school so they're not able to learn um, correctly behavioral issues um, start coming up
1: so partnership partnership for the public good and um, 38 other organizations are giving the city 30 days to come up with a plan um, but what what happens if the city does not come up with a plan which it's probably like 23 days now um it seems like the city has been loath to come up with a plan um what what happens if they don't come up with a plan what are these organizations going to do
6: well as of now we're hoping that they actually um come up with a plan right because as they buffalonians we are in we're in crisis right Mm -hmm. we've been in crisis since before 2020 we um we were hoping that in 2020 they came up with the plan they fixed it but we're hoping that we don't have to go farther um we're hoping that we don't have to um go farther than that but we might have to but we're this is our warning i will say that
1: okay and i um when i spoke with uh, Andrea O'Sullivan from Partnership for the Public Good. She did. She did warn us that there could be a lawsuit filed um, if the city doesn't come up with a, a plan to inspect these houses um, more. Uh, more houses per year, I would. I. I would say. Um. And so with these with these lead issues in homes throughout the city um there is there is a bit of a i wouldn't even say a bit of but there is a racialized component to this as well uh Janet, can you can you speak to that
6: yes it is definitely a racialized component we can definitely see within like black brown communities um and minorities we are um, his, especially historically, you can see like Buffalo itself is definitely a, a segregated um, city due to ra- um, red lighting, and mm-hmm. due to that, you can see where the lead is itself. Um, those areas are affected more, um, and then this is why we're asking <laughs> we're asking like the city to recognize that this problem and protect the people who are at risk the most and who are suffering.
1: Mhm. And Brianna, this 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 issue, this the issue of of lead poisoning is very much um it, it, it's a part of who you are kind of, right? Can you can you tell us a little bit about your dealings uh with with lead poisoning?
7: Yeah, so as um Jenea mentioned, um so the chipping paint is how I was exposed. Um it was chipping in the window sills and then I would eat it. As a child, I was about probably like three. Wow. Um and it was in a like a upstairs, downstairs home, um just as like the law is pushing. Um and pretty much I was hospitalized. Um I did read a article in the Buffalo News my mom um put out. It was in like nineteen ninety eight. And she talks about uh, me, like, being hospitalized and um having, like, three times the average lead, like, what you should have. Um, wow. So that led me to be, like, hospitalized for, like, two weeks. And um, on top of that, it was a tough time um, because I also lost my father during that time, so being exposed to lead and also dealing with that trauma could lead to a lot of like social, emotional issues, which I look back at. And I noticed that I had a lot of those issues growing up um, and I I learned to regulate them as an adult now. But um, but yeah, that that was pretty much my experience.
1: How'd you how'd you work through it?
7: Uh. So my mom is really hands-on with me. That's why um, we encourage parents to really um, do, like, brain builders and really be hands-on with their child, not just let um, the schools teach their, their children. But um, also, too, I, I have been in, like, counseling um, and, like, leadership development programs, but I understand that a lot of people don't have that opportun- the opportunities I have had to overcome that
1: and so that that kind of brings us to uh lead 716 can you talk a little bit about that organization
7: yes so lead 716 is part of um, beyond support network so beyond support um, works to empower support and um, educate individuals with developmental or learning disabilities so Part of that, we have like daycares, preschools, we also have um, day halves, and we also employment services for um, individuals with disabilities. But under that is also LED716, which focus on preschoolers um, ages two to five and building social, emotional skills with them. So we send out a tutor once a week to those um, children. It could be at a home, a daycare, at a Head Start, um or even at a school and they'll just do a this like hour session with that child just mm-hmm. building like a social emotional learning how learn teaching the child how to regulate their emotions how to use their words um, to describe their emotions so they know how to handle cuz usually now most kids start, they start saying, oh, well, they have behavioral issues, but it's really that they just don't know how to, they don't understand their emotions and they don't know how to regulate it. And a lot of times they just need that extra attention and someone to help them understand that.
1: And you had mentioned um, off air that that there are some challenges families face in the program.
7: Yeah. So um, that could be like lower IQ scores, um speech and hearing um, disabilities, Uh, also ADHD, that's social emotional issues, Um, but also too like these families also face, some families I talk to may not have food, so it's hard for a, a family to focus on lead poisoning when it's other things going on around them like they have to worry about you know feeding their child every day or even trying to get to work or so like I said it's just really hard to focus on that when
1: there's so many it's so many things things
7: wrapped around you know a family with you know low income
1: Mm -hmm. so talk to me about the, the website what um, what can be, what types of information can be found on your website?
7: Yes, yeah, so um, on lead716.org, you can find how to enroll your child. Um, there's also information about what our program offers, what you your child would need to be enrolled into the program, um, information about what to do if um, your child is exposed to lead, like numbers, um, where to call in the county. Um, to get your house ins- um inspected, um, and then also there's um an opportunity to even donate to the program, as well, and also my contact information if um you need to speak to the coordinator.
1: And w- uh, what's that? What's that website again?
7: It's www.led716.org. So, Janaya, what what's
1: next for the housing justice side of push buffalo
6: yes we're trying to get people more aware about proactive renter's inspection because a lot of we found out that a lot of people don't know about it and we feel like that's one of the reasons why the city's been able to not implement it Mm -hmm. properly um so we've been trying to um, educate people in the community so we've go- we're going to um, start we're starting workshops right uh, around proactive vintage inspection so our first one's going to be on march 12th at six o'clock p.m and that's going to be at our push buffalo location so it's going to be at 429 plymouth f um, so that's downtown the west side, which is um, at the old school 77 if you know where mm-hmm. that's at. <laughs> um, so if you're willing, you can come and join. We're also going to have some other dates that we're going to be posted about it soon on our, on our um, Push Buffalo website. Um, and also we're going to be continually aligning with PPG and we're probably going to be still doing more pressers and press conference. So you'll we'll be seeing us there. Right.
1: I, I was, I was, I would be remiss if I didn't say yes, that, that, that what you're doing is part of, uh, one of the agenda planks, uh, of the partnership for the public goods, uh, 2024 rollout.
6: Yes. Yes. We did get on the agenda too there.
1: Well, what is, what's it like having that, you know, um, having that partnership with the partnership um you know (laughs) with them having your back on 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 this issue
6: it feels good like we didn't expect like when we actually got on the agenda we didn't expect like ppg to also be like hey like we actually were like we got so aligned with each other and they and it felt good to say that like oh because we already talked with our community members and they said that like they said that they wanted um their homes to be safe and stuff like that. Like that's mm-hmm. the reason why any plank that we do it came from um people in the communities and then to get like PPG support too and also being able to have this um public front and the support it's actually been so good and able and it was I would say that I'm happy that we're able to get the support that we need to get the word out um, about PRI because this is something that we really need did and you, it's important. Yeah,
1: you, you had to to pitch this to the partnership. How did that work?
6: Um, yes, we um yes, I had to do a pitch um to um PPG. Uh, so, and then it had to be voted on um p r i like they have like a rollout session, and people like um from different orgs like vote on it, and like they they have a whole process mm-hmm. um and we were lucky enough to vote um get voted on and be part of their agenda so
1: and just so people aren't confused p r i is kind of like a umbrella law that that the city has adopted and then the lead poisoning and the lead lead inspections in the housing is 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 within that uh, under that umbrella
6: yes i would say um it covers multiple things so yes yes it cover one thing it covers is lead um, and it also says within the law and what's to make um, housing like safe, have halib- have halalbo, halib- and it also covers like so
1: infrastructure within the house and stuff like that. Yes,
6: so I would say like yes is is an umbrella term for multiple things.
1: Yes, and, and Brianna, what's next for you? What's next for Lead Seven One Six?
7: Uh, well, at 11, 716, I would say what's next is just the just continue to help more preschoolers that have been exposed. Of course, we want to stop lead poisoning in Buffalo, New York, but those who have been exposed, we just hope to enroll more kids and help them so that they can live healthy, active adult lives in the future. Um, And then also to expand with um, even tutors to help the the kiddos out um, that are enrolled into the program
1: do you do you speak with the kids do you do you say hey I was I was once in this position and now and now here I am as a as a as a success
7: yeah I have um I have met some of the kids more so I speak with the parents Uh uh-huh. um so I'm able to tell them about my story and um just provide a sense of hope that you know even your child, you know, may have been exposed but they still can have a healthy, active, a successful life, um, in the future, if, you know, they take those um measures as such as LED seven one six and getting that proactive help.
1: Do you do you feel supported when you when you meet other people going going through the same thing that you went through?
7: Yeah, I I do. I'm I honestly I'm pretty shocked that it's still going on. As as I go as into the, this, and as position. the web, your
1: website says, it's completely preventable.
7: Right. Yeah. I I just am actually shocked as I go into my like adult career because I you know I knew about lead and I studied and researched it, but I I'm more so shocked that 26 years later, it's so many kids that are still being exposed like that. It's a big problem.
1: Mm-hmm hmm this is what's next i want to thank my guests Janaya capers and brianna hargrave talking about some important stuff here I, I want to really thank you guys for being on with us today we'll be back with
0: more what's next after this you're listening to what's next our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of western new york and southern ontario we want to hear from you Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. On a previous installment of What's
1: Next, we traveled to Olean to visit Della Moore, who founded and runs the African-American Center for Cultural Development. Della gave us a tour of the Exhibition Hall, which includes artifacts of local historical interest. The following is a brief snippet of that tour. Well, let me walk here. Please, yeah, I'm i sorry, i sorry. I'm in the ashes, I just jumped right in. Yeah. This is our Exhibition
4: Hall, right? We've had events in here, I mean, exhibits here,
1: and
4: even while things were going on. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, things just kept going on. And uh, uh, this is where we have our uh, most exhibitions, you know, that will go on. And I'm not a fan of uh, of uh, holes in the wall, even though you see little strips and stuff. That's all I know. Keep pointing but, them out. i yeah, do <laughs> yes, that. Okay. Yeah, I got it. I got it. But so I like the little things that um, yes, I wrote one. This is our uh, I had um, Western Auto a glass, uh, build a, uh, a enclosure. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was enclosed. I mean, it was uh, shelving and the lights, but I just needed this. Mm-hmm. Some of those things, I love it. They're, they're I've been collecting forever. I mean, these guys, but uh, this, of course, is history and stuff. We have world history, mm-hmm. and we have local history.
0: Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And what's, what are the, the plates
4: on the top? The plates on the top is from a friend of mine who, uh, a minister of Bethlehem church, who presented me with uh, his artwork, and that's his oh, artwork okay. wow. depicting the black, black experience, uh, grandfather, mm. and then the church, and uh, just hanging out, and then uh, you know African. Mm. Uh-huh. This is where I got most of my stuff about Sarah Johnson. Who Sarah Johnson is the, uh, 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 the um, runaway slave who came, who wound up in holding mm. and became a uh, uh, an icon, a favorite right? icon. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, and uh, her her home, she was needed a house in 1850, and 1850 was when the fugitive slave got teeth. Oh, um, remember? Right. And so that says a lot about Olean, Olean, would, and no they, pr- no
0: they protected her? Yes,
4: no? Olean. There was not one runaway slave was ever caught in Olean. Wow. Not at all. Wow. Not at all. No. And uh so uh, because those
0: um, uh, people were pretty aggressive. Oh yes, yeah, oh, oh yes. Well, they 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 wouldn't let nobody in
4: there. There are lots of stories about that <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like a tar and feather thing. I'm going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, yeah, so this is this was a great area for safety, and some a lot of the people who live here now are from the oh, people uh, who okay. came. Yes, right. so that's what that article is about. Okay, okay, I think that's. uh,
0: uh, You can hear more of this tour as well as an in-depth interview with Della at wbfo.org.
1: This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo,
0: WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.